Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, thanks for joining us on another episode of Three Squares. I'm Charlie Arnott with Look East and the Center for Food Integrity, dedicating my career to keeping food trustworthy. I'm Susan Schwally, president of the Food and Beverage Practice at the MPD Group. I'm fascinated by why people eat and drink what they do. And I'm Kevin Ryan, your resident food nerd and founder of Malachite Strategy and Research. And I've developed innovation and strategy for dozens of CPG brands from Green Giant to Haagen-Dazs. And we are the Three Squares, dishing on the food industry. We're uncovering the interesting stories in food and talking to today's movers and shakers. Thanks to General Mills for their support on this episode. Our guest is Miles Kubeka of the Wakanda Food Accelerator in South Africa. Miles speaks to us about the risks that entrepreneurs have to take. And there's a lot for us to chew on about this topic because risk and entrepreneurship and innovation is the lifeblood of really everything we do. And more often than not, there's failures than successes, but you have to have those failures to get the winners. So... I thought that we could talk a little bit about what are some risks that maybe didn't go so well, but let's focus also on what is achieved in the food space. Kevin, can you kick us off with anything? Did you know that Colgate back in the 80s launched Colgate lasagna? Mm. That's gross. There was a time of experimentation, I think, in the 80s, and that was a good thing. So that's the good positive thing. But the idea that they went out and said, I guess it's things people are okay putting it in, putting our, in their, their mouth. mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's called Colgate. It's so that means it was a lasagna flavored toothpaste. That no, no. Nice. This but actual is, lasagna. It was an actual brand. They tried to go into uh, a whole frozen line, actually, I believe. Uh, but frozen lasagna is the one. If you go out and Google, you can find a picture of that. So there's a risk that probably was uh, not worth taking, but uh, work out for them. did not work out for them, probably because they no. didn't know anything about the food space <laughs> and probably didn't have good distribution. We could say that. Was it's it all about distribution. That? It was yeah. Yeah. supply chain. 100%. It was supply chain. It really was supply, supply chain. chain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I applaud them for trying it. But uh, that's a couple of layers and categories they probably shouldn't have expanded into. As you get into larger companies, it becomes much more difficult to truly yeah. take risks because the consequences are more significant. Even though we laugh at Colgate lasagna, I've been in the room many times at different companies where it becomes an echo chamber. This We're getting positive numbers on this aspect, or we need to launch something by the end of this quarter, and mm-hmm. it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, so well, They may <laughs> have had some wayward market researcher telling them that they could expand by putting things in people's mouths. I, one of my also favorite risks was a famous ketchup company at one point, you may recall, Kevin, launched Glitter Ketchup. Yes. <clears throat> and my yes. understanding was that there was no research behind that. That was just an echo chamber thing that someone thought would be a good idea. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah, there's like that balance between actually using research to guide you and then the other side, which is flying this off the, you know, the seat you of your pants, pants to try to get there. So there is a balance that needs to Yeah, yeah, it's a We've not seen Olive sure. Garden come out with uh, toothpaste, nor have we seen them put glitter on their salad dressing. <laughs> no, we yeah. have not. But from a positive side... One positive that I would say from a risk perspective is, what was it, about eight or nine years ago now, Domino's decided to do a mea culpa, and they said, our 
pizza is crap. Basically, that's really what they said. I mean, there's no yep. Yep. no other way to say it. And said, we made a mistake and we're going to try to change this. And that was a huge risk. I don't think we, at the time even, recognized what a big risk that was. They were one of the leaders and they decided to say, we recognize that we're, we don't have good stuff and you're going to have to hold us accountable, which was a big yep. change. Yeah, I think that just in, in today's environment, social media and the demand for authenticity and the expectation that brands will have this ongoing engagement, not just messaging, but ongoing engagement. They were probably one of the early ones who had that level of authenticity and transparency and owned it. But to your point, Kevin, I can't imagine the conversations that took place within Domino senior leadership to be able to come out and say, hey, we've done all the research and what the research tells us is our product stinks. Yeah. There's a fantastic video somewhere that I've seen through these years where they actually talk to the folks at Domino's. And I mean, it is painful. You feel the pain of the culinary folks over there. I I think that is a, a great story. Yeah. Excellent. Risk taking obviously is a key to success. And if you're going to fail fast and then pick yourself up, move on. Yeah, that's true. And with that, our table discussion with Miles Kubeka is next. At General Mills, we know it's not just what we make, but how we make it that matters. We take care in selecting the ingredients behind our beloved brands, such as Cheerios, Nature Valley, Old El Paso, Haagen-Dazs, and Annie's. And we go further by working every day to alleviate hunger, slow climate change, and strengthen communities. Today, that's what it means to make food the world loves. Learn more at GeneralMills.com. Kevin and Charlie, I am so excited about our guest today from South Africa, Miles Kupeka. He is so committed to helping entrepreneurs in South Africa find success. Look, I'm going to let him talk about himself, but if you Google him, he is described as a visionary, a leader, a trailblazer. He started Vuyos. Yeah, now you have a food accelerator. So what else would you want our listeners to know about you, Miles? I subsequently studied to become a chef as well. Interestingly, I'm very good with a knife in the kitchen now. And that actually started because when I started my restaurant, what would happen is you tell the chefs in the kitchen to try X and Y and they would always they don't rate you if you're not one of them. So I ended up every day after work, I would work from nine to six in my restaurant and then from six to midnight to be at culinary school as well as working in other people's restaurants for about two years. And that was an interesting exercise, I can assure you. That is fascinating. So help us understand exactly how your interest in innovation and entrepreneurship and food has intersected all the way through to your food accelerator today. Cool. It's actually an interesting story. My background is I'm a systems engineer. I worked for Microsoft for almost a decade. And then in my home country, South Africa, there was this advert about this character called Buyo this entrepreneur who was selling burovo strolls, which is essentially like hot dogs. He had a hot dog stand that he built into an empire, which then became restaurants. And then he went off to space. He had his own aeroplane called Evors One, which is the Vors, is the Burovos. It was such an amazing and inspiring advert. So I wondered if it was based on a true story. I wondered if this Vuyo character actually existed. I googled only to discover a totally fictitious character dreamt up by an advertising agency. I then promptly trademarked it and I became Voyo from that day on. Sadly, even my mom now calls me Voyo. <laughs> 
explain to us what Vuyo is and how you got to the food accelerator. Yeah. So when I inherited that brand equity, I opened more of these hot dog stands, like in New York, those hot dog stands with the umbrella. It was just all Vuyo. So that was the brand. And then I didn't leave Microsoft to do little food carts and hot dog stands. I wanted bricks and mortar to say, look, my, I made it. And, uh, um, so we opened a lot of restaurants and then in 2016, uh, 17, I semi-retired, sold the business. And that's when I started my food accelerator because it was like, I've got all this learning and, and I learned from the ground zero from farmer's markets, food uh, carts and, and, and so forth. So my learnings were quintessentially entrepreneurial, like from lemonade stand to opening multiple restaurants. So it felt like it was a shame to to take that knowledge and, and not find ways to to share it on. So when I started the accelerator, I was like, what do I wish I had when I started? You know, and I put all of the things I wish I had into the accelerator from a shared kitchen space to having access to people in the industry from manufacturing to packaging, branding to logistics across the board from a food space. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. And your food accelerator and the work that you're doing is helping make some of the indigenous foods actually more accessible. And I'm not doing justice to this, but can you explain that dynamic to us? Sure. What's amazing when you come into a new industry, you ask dumb questions and you often get even dumber answers because no one has stopped to ask, why do we still do things this way? So when I went to culinary school, one of the first things I realized being in the kitchen is how much food waste there was. I mean, it should have been obvious because even at restaurant level, there's some food waste, but at hotel level, the scale is just unbelievable. So when I started the accelerator, I knew that I think by then the bug had caught me. I knew that my purpose in life was to end hunger because it just didn't make any sense to me why there's so much food, but there's so many people who are hungry, why hunger persists. And then it just dawned on me that hunger is actually not a food problem. It's a distribution problem. So one of the things we do as a food accelerator is we discovered that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So we've got entrepreneurs working on plant-based tech, food tech, agro-processing. So I have the luxury of having all these amazing food creatives and foodpreneurs working on their passions, but I get to almost have a sandbox of guiding them into ending hunger as a problem statement. So it's like a, I'm a mad scientist uh, uh, surrounded by these amazing people who are passionate in their own lane, but together we almost have a combined um, purpose. Oh, great story. Fascinating. Really interesting. I'm interested in your take on a particular perspective that you're trying to unpack a really challenging problem. So a couple of things on that. What's the relationship between entrepreneurship and solving some of our bigger problems? And then one of the, the phrases that we, we heard from an earlier guest was that continuous improvement is the enemy of transformative change. And it sounds like really what you're focused on is transformative change. So what do you see as the role of entrepreneurship in that? And what are some of the key barriers that you've run up against? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a big question. And because I always wondered why isn't something as big as hunger already been solved? We, we're sending rockets to to space on a daily basis. And that's an in order magnitude much more difficult when you really work it out. But uh 
we have enough food to feed 10 billion people. We only have seven and a half billion people. So clearly we have enough food. Like, but why do in South Africa, 19 million people go to bed hungry every night? So that's where entrepreneurship comes in um, is because I always say like entrepreneurship is a faith-based business because there's no reason for one to believe that this is going to work. It's a hypothesis at the at best and an educated guess at very least. So that's why I know we will make a dent at this because we believe that we will solve it in our lifetime. And you have to have that level of naivete or or belief that you typically only find in entrepreneurs because that's what you need as an entrepreneurship. You need to believe regardless of the information that's at your disposal, that you can solve the problem. And I think it's absolutely true because it goes against all logic to start yeah. a small business or it's to start irrational. a new business. Because it is irrational. It's completely yeah. irrational. And yet and people painful. continue to do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but people do it because of the passion that they have for the issue or the, the product or the opportunity ahead of them. But what do you see as some of the systemic barriers that entrepreneurship has to overcome to address some of the challenges you've identified? The thing is, I think scale is one of the things. What I've come to realize, everything takes three times as long and costs three times as much. And that's painful because often if you don't have that runway to do that, the best intentions can amount to nothing because people run out of runway. And I think one thing the U.S. has done very well, seemingly, is the abundance of capital, right? The fact that I know that if you invest in 10, probably nine of them will fail, but you only need one to be successful to recoup and, 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 and invest further. But you need that cavalier attitude, the Wild West attitude to say, go forth and prosper. And if it doesn't work out, cool, come back. Let's learn from those lessons and reinvest. In Africa or South Africa, when you fail, the system almost automatically marginalizes you out because mm. you get blacklisted, you can't get credit. You, once you're there, it's very difficult to come back in. I think that's really a shame. The beauty about Africa in general is that the opportunity is mind-blowing. Like it's fertile ground, literally and figuratively, one. Two, when we solve the problems here, we almost solve them for the rest of the developing world. We've got the highest population of uh, youth, whereas everybody else is older and decrepit. We've got the youngest population. So those are amazing opportunities that if you get that right, we are able to pull through the global economy going forward. And then, of course, finally, we've got amazing superfoods and, uh, and products that the rest of the world doesn't even know about yet. Miles, I'm interested in, can you give us an example of some startups in, that you're involved in or maybe ones that you're just seeing around you that you're really excited <laughs> by? Yeah, there's one particular one. The lady is Dr. Tracy. She's a medical doctor by training. It turns out, and I didn't know this, it turns out that a lot of Africans are actually lactose intolerant, but because of the education system, people don't know. So this presents itself in all sorts of like weight issues and health issues and so forth. So she discovered after having a first child that this was a problem for her. As a medical doctor, she tried all the Western avenues to, to try and solve for the problem. But then when she went to her grandmother and the grandmother just said, no, you take some Boabab seeds and amarula seeds, you crush them into a powder, put them in a drink, you'll be okay. Now, that's been done for a thousand of, thousands of years in Africa, but because everybody's now westernized, those amazing traditions have been lost. And one of the things I always say to our entrepreneurs is that Africa needs to modernize, not westernize. 
we need to figure out how to scale the stuff that works, but do it in a manner that works for the continent. Because if you do it that way, the sustainability aspect automatically happens. Is, so, is she selling uh, that powder? So, She's made that powder into a plant-based dessert. I can't call it an ice cream because obviously it doesn't have dairy. It's the most amazing product. I swear I'm going to ship it to you guys and I'd like you to be the judge. So she's just listed in 70 retail stores in South Africa. Luckily, people are starting to open up to see that Mother Africa knew what she was doing. This was mind-blowing for me. It's hard in South Africa, for example, at retail to find the indigenous products in distribution because... It's all imported foodstuffs from Europe. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, not to dwell too much on history, but obviously most of Africa was colonized by some European country or another. So the problem with that, though, Mm. is that you want to grow more of what you grew up eating back home. Africans, we grew up eating millet or sorghum which is a superfood, highly nutritious. What then happens is that the indigenous cuisine steadily disappears from the menu because everybody's palate becomes the same over time. And and the rest of the world, monocropping with corn and the science that's gone into corn is essentially that weed, I call it a weed, has killed everything else. And invariably what that then does is that it means it becomes more efficient to, to grow that crop and therefore, by default, eradicates the indigenous products. And then just to add on to that, the, the biggest problem we now have also in Africa, ironically, is that it's now become cheaper to import food because, um, because the bigger countries, US, Europe, we've got trade agreements like the Algoa. So we get benefits if we don't grow certain things. But then that allows those other countries to dump the products they don't want. So Brazil will supply chicken breasts to the US, but the rest of the chicken, um, they then dump the rest of the bird to, the, to, to Africa. What then that does is that means African farmers don't end up growing chicken because it's, the dump product is cheaper on the continent. And you can see what the spill-off effects of that is. So, Miles, what are the success stories you've seen that have come out of the accelerator so far? So, for example, Dr. Tracy is one I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about because the interesting thing about her is that her product, the plant-based dessert, is named after her son, the one that she actually had the problem with. And she films herself going to the first store to go see the product being listed on shelf. And it's mind-blowing that South Africa is almost 30 years achieved its democracy, but you still don't see indigenous South African-made products on shelves. That's like mind-blowing. And and we'll start building confidence in even in retailers in, in acquiring more of these indigenous products. So I think we're starting to make uh, headway, but it just feels like at the same time, we're just heating up the ocean with a kettle. It's amazing how important food culture is and and how reestablishing that food culture is such a positive force. Yeah, because your patois matters. Breaking bread is the essence of humanity. No matter what stories you read from cavemen, people would gather around a fire and eat. That's the best internet. That was the first internet. But what happens in, in Africa or in poor communities generally, if you're poor, food is a chore. If you're middle class or well-off, food is an experience. 
you're, deeply you're, you're profound. Sa- you're South Africa's Jose Andres, essentially. Yeah, Miles, when you've had conversations, mm-hmm. it sounds like you've gone to different countries and had these conversations with folks. What is the connective tissue between entrepreneurs you see in South Africa and entrepreneurs around the world? What are the lessons that you tell entrepreneurs everywhere? Like, you should be thinking of it like this. You should be thinking of it like that. Yeah, like I often get asked if entrepreneurs are born or made. And I'm mm-hmm. of the opinion that entrepreneurs are born and made. I think nurture um, uh, loads the gun and nature pulls the trigger. I, I was watching Hussein Bolt running his first race. He came fifth or something. So even with the innate talent, if you don't have a great coach and repeating and, and going back when you fail and improving, you're not going to live up to your full potential. I think what I see in all entrepreneurs is the comfort in that failure can happen and then and the ability to go back and, and try again. I think most of our schooling systems beat that out of us as human beings. I think if everybody was comfortable that failure happens, the world would be so much further than we are now. So Good advice. Yeah. Miles, absolutely fascinating as always. Every time I talk to you, I'm, I learn so much and I'm inspired. So I appreciate your time today and great to know you and so much wonderful food for thought. Thanks for the time today, Miles. Only a pleasure. It was so awesome chatting to you guys. It's uh, one thing that is cool about that what has happened with COVID is the ability that to realize that the world is actually small and every human being matters. And yeah, so thank you. Wonderful to meet you. Thanks, Miles. Likewise. One of the things that, that Miles said that it really stuck with me was the power of risk-taking. And in a previous part of my career, I worked for a company that was funded by venture capitalists that ended up filing bankruptcy. And it was a fascinating experience because you go back and learn a little bit about how the bankruptcy laws were created and why they were created. And our founding fathers, many of whom were escaping debtor's prison and came over, really wanted to create a culture that encouraged risk-taking. And so we don't have debtor's prison. We don't shame people. We don't shun people when they fail. As Miles noted, we encourage them to get back up, dust themselves off and try again. Yeah, Miles was talking about it as a countrywide, but you're absolutely right. It's a corporate wide too. You can definitely see as a company moves from startup to midsize to large traditional organization, you can definitely see the risk taking gene start to be bred out. As you get into a bigger company, variability becomes what you try to get out of the company. So everything needs to look the same. Everything must be the same. So anytime anyone comes up with something new, the antibodies in the company come out against the risk. Yeah. And there's a lot of companies that I've talked to and they've all said, oh no, we're all about risk-taking. And it's, let's see how people really feel about that. I think exactly as Miles said, do you have something in place that doesn't... um, burn the whole house down around these people when they have something that doesn't work out. Yeah, I think you nailed it because I've worked with operators and I've worked with entrepreneurs and they are two different breeds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if, you're, if you've been hired to be the CEO who's the operator, you've replaced the founder who came in with passion and fire and an idea, but was very open to taking risks and reached a certain scale. And others have come in and said, that's great. Thanks for that. We will pay you well for getting us to where we are today. But now we need to bring in uh, more accountants and more lawyers and fewer risk takers. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's a point at which lots of risk taking is great, 
Then there's other times, and I've been on the floor of a plant making product, and it's, that's not the time to take risk. <laughs> you're not taking risk <laughs> yeah. when you're making no. product for, for consumers. So it's about having the conversation at the high levels and at the the rest of the company about what risk means and what we're going to do, and, and then showing it when something does happen. And learning how to fail fast and move on. Yeah, and learn from it. Right. Or buy it. Or buy it. That's a risk in itself. It's hard to do, so I think that's been a huge experiment over the last decade or so, small brands versus large brands and how we've seen that evolve. Yeah. And whether or not you keep them close or you whether or not you keep them far away. Far away, yeah. right. Yep. Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting. What I'm impressed by with Miles is that, and, and for the entrepreneurs in South Africa, is my guess is a lot of them don't have a safety net. They don't have a safety no. net in the government. They don't have a safety net at home with having to. And whereas in the U.S., a lot of folks that start they have some safety net. And by that, what I mean is, is that maybe they have some family they could go back to. They have a job they might be able to go back to or be able to find. If you don't have that, I don't understand. It, to me, it's crazy that they're going out and being entrepreneurs. It really shows the guts they have to be able to do that. Yeah. So I'm impressed. All right. On today's What the Food with our benevolent food scientist and expert on all things food and beverage, Kevin Ryan. Kevin, Fruit flies. How do they get into our house? I mean, we're, we're all diligent. We've got screens on the windows. We keep everything clean. We keep it where it's supposed to be. And then son of a gun, there they show up in the fruit bowl. And they just seem to appear out of nowhere. What is the deal? Where do fruit flies come from? They're small. Sometimes they'll come in through a screen. They're all attracted by fermenting fruit or anything that smells like fermenting fruit. So if you have fruit on your counter and it starts to ferment, fruit flies will come in, lay eggs on it and go to town. I think the scary thing for some people, which shouldn't really scare you, is sometimes fruit comes from the market with eggs already on it. So you're mm -hmm. already eating fruit with eggs in it. What if you wash your fruit? Oh. You can get it off. But I think the thing is that you're fine. It's not going to hurt you. Cool. Is it on the surface <laughs> of the fruit? Or yeah, is it it's like... on the surface of the fruit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about figs. Ow. Don't ruin figs for me. It's the same topic because it's like if you've ever hidden a fig, you've eaten a wasp. No yes. way. Figs are pollinated by a, the little hole on the end of a fig. One ends the stem yeah. end, the other ends are a little hole. That yeah. little hole yeah. is evolutionary design for one type of wasp to crawl in, pollinate. The problem is that it oftentimes doesn't come back out. Oh. And it dies in there and it just dissolves because figs have a very strong enzyme that starts breaking down animal protein. And we have definitely eaten wasp when you've eaten a fig, and it's totally cool. Not going to so hurt you. fig is like a praying mantis? It enzymes and No, it doesn't bugs? want to eat it. It's just that it just happens that it almost always does. Like me with salt and vinegar potato chips. I don't really want to. It just, it just happens. <laughs> it does right. happen. Right. Yeah. Sometimes Charlie gets stuck in a bag of salt and vinegar chips. Bag. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Kevin... So, well, n neither of those are quite as assaulting as when you're, like, at a picnic or something and you open your mouth and then the gnat or something actually flies yeah. in your mouth and you can't get it out. Again, well. protein. It's not going to hurt you. Have you both heard of defect action levels? Either of you heard of defect <laughs> action levels? <laughs> yes, it's often my favorite topic at dinner parties. <laughs> if you've ever taken... In food science, it's a required course. You have to understand defect is action levels. Is it like levels. thermodynamics for engineers? Yeah. Defect, something? Basically what it is, how much of particular insect parts are allowed in food. Oh, yeah. And it's required that, that each product that you produce has to have a defect action level, which is how many fly hairs are in ice cream, all that kind of stuff. And people how think, oh, that's so gross. The thing is, though, is that the industry 
has less than most homes because they're counting and they know how much they can they can't have. Is this like a microscopic situation? Yes, it's a microscopic. So like they are required to take, say, a bag of chips off the line, take it, look at the crumbs and count how many things are in there. It's a natural product. Things are going to be in there, but they're actually counting. And if it if it has too many they shut down. They start all over again. And I always tell people at home, you're probably eating more than that if you're creating stuff because there's mm-hmm. stuff in your home too. Especially if you have pets. Especially if you have pets. You probably have dog or cat here floating around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing to worry about is basically what I said. Nothing to worry about here. On that appetite. <laughs> Enjoy your wasps and dog hairs. <laughs> all right, let's check the label. Has this podcast expired? It is time for us to go. Three Squares Dishing on the Food Industry is created and hosted by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. Thanks again to General Mills for their support on this episode. And if you're interested in sponsoring us, please reach out to one of us or send us an email to three squares mail M-A-I-L, at gmail.com because we want to keep the discussion going and hear from you. Thanks to Miles Kubeka for joining us on our table discussion this week. Thanks to our producers, Dave Beesing and Jason Jackson at Sound That Brands. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. Please like us and share it with your friends. Food is our passion and we're glad it's yours too. We'll set the table again soon on Three Squares. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.